Well, today as we uh, celebrate Reformation Day, I want to take a break from our study of Romans 12, 12, which would would have been a perfectly appropriate uh, passage to tackle, but I am going to be out next week, and so I wanted to have some continuity there. Uh, So we're going to turn our attention to Ephesians 1. I want to focus in, as I said, on verses 22 and 23, but I'm going to back up to verse 15 and read from there God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us today. Well, on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago this Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, Martin Luther dealt the symbolic blow that would begin the Protestant Reformation when he nailed his 95 theses, 95 points of argument for public debate to the door of the Wittenberg Church. That document contained an attack on papal abuses and the sale of indulgences by by church officials. But Luther himself saw the Reformation as something far more important than a revolt against ecclesiastical abuses. He thought the most important thing was he believed it was a fight for the gospel, for the good news about Jesus Christ. And at the heart of the gospel in Luther's estimation was this doctrine that we celebrate, the doctrine of of justification by faith, teaching that Christ's own righteousness is imputed to those who believe but their faith in Christ, and on that ground alone they are accepted by God. And Luther, later on uh, in his life, even stated that he would have happily yielded every point of dispute to the Pope if only the Pope had affirmed the gospel. I've given you the quote in the outline that I want to read that Martin Luther said this. He said, The chief cause that I fell out with the Pope was this. The Pope boasted that he was the head of the church and condemned all that would not be under his power and authority. For he said, Although Christ be the head of the church, yet notwithstanding, there must be a corporal head of the church upon earth. With this I could have been content had he but taught the gospel pure and clear and not introduced human inventions and lies in in its stead. Further, he took upon him power, rule, and authority over the Christian church and over the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, 
No man must presume to expound the scriptures, but only he, and according to his ridiculous conceits, so that he made himself Lord over the church, proclaiming her at the same time a powerful mother and empress over the scriptures, to which we must yield and be obedient. This was not to be endured. They who, against God's word, boast of the church's authority are mere idiots. Spoken like only Luther can speak it. The Pope attributes more power to the church, which is begotten and born, than to the word which has begotten, conceived, and born the church. So Luther was saying that the Pope was putting himself as head of the church in Christ's stead at the point when he stopped teaching the word of Christ, the gospel. The word of Christ should be the final authority, not the word of, of any mere man. Well, verse 22 of the passage before us today states that Jesus Christ is head of the church. And likewise, we can quote other parallel passages such as Colossians 1.18 where it says, and Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So throughout scripture we see this metaphor of the body uh, uh, to help us understand the relationship between Christ and the church. Now the first thing that Paul states here in verse 22 is this. He, he put all things under his feet. To have all things under his feet, that is Jesus Christ, means that everything is subject to him. He is seated as head of the entire universe. There's nothing that exists that is not under his rule and authority. Paul's already stated that couple of verses back in verse 20 uh, Christ is seated at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion that includes any kind of spiritual powers any kind of physical powers earthly powers and he is above every name that is named there is not a name that is above Christ's name not only in this age but also in the one to come. There will never be another name greater than Christ's name. There will never be one higher than Christ. So to Jesus Christ, all things are made subject. Paul then goes on to say that this one who is ruler over all things is specifically head of the church. He gave them as head over all things to the church. All things are placed under his feet, and the head over all things is head of the church. Now this means several things, three things specifically that I've given you here. Well, it means that he's the supreme head, supreme ruler of the church. He is the head of the church. He is the source of the church's life. You can't have life without being connected to the head, to, to Christ. And finally, if Christ is the head... And that means that the church that he's the head of is his body. I'm going to explore those three things today uh, in, the, in the minutes that we have here. First, Christ is the, the supreme ruler of the church. No one else rules the church. Some people like to think they do. But only Christ is head of the church. Not the Pope, as Luther pointed out. Not any king, as we look at British history especially, you'll see that come into play, that the the kings of England like to play head of the church. Uh, not any minister, not any priest, not any church member. 
There's some church members that like to think they're head of the church sometimes in the local congregations. And there are some pastors that do as well. But only Christ is head of the church. And of course, human beings like to grab authority and power that's not their own. We are always guilty of overreach. And this has been true in the church. All authority and power in the church belongs to Jesus Christ, and the church must obey his word in all things. The church must be ruled by Christ's word, not by any man's opinion. And that's what Luther was saying in his day. And there are many other examples throughout history of individuals who wanted to be head of the church, including King James. Uh, King James VI of Scotland became King James I of, of the entire uh, England, Scotland, Wales, etc. And earlier in his career, he butted heads with the Scottish divines, the church. And he didn't like some of the decisions they were made, making. And, and one of the reasons that he authorized the uh, King James version of the Bible that we many of us enjoy today was because he didn't like the, the earlier version, the Geneva Bible, because the Puritans, who opposed him quite often, had written uh, study notes that went with that Bible, and King James was trying to get rid of it so he could have a bit more power than the Puritans wanted to give him. Well, the leaders of the Church of Scotland came to King James because he was forbidding them from meeting, from, from uh, doing their ecclesiastical duties. They could go to church, but to have uh, colloquies where they would get together and, and lead the church... James didn't want them to do that. So Andrew Melville and a couple of other men came before King James when he was the king of Scotland. And uh, one of the fellows was tapped to be the spokesman, and he was kind of uh, being a little too deferential. Andrew Melville was a very fiery Scottish guy, and he jumps in. Well, this other guy was kind of floundering around the su subject, and he cut to the chase. And he said, therefore, sir, therefore, sir, at diverse times before I have told you, so now again I must tell you, you are God's silly vassal. There are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is Christ Jesus, the king of the church, whose subject King James VI is, and of whose kingdom he is not a king, nor a lord, nor a head, but a member. We will yield to you your place and give you all due obedience. But again, I say, you are not the head of the church. You cannot give us the eternal life, which even in this world we seek for, and you cannot deprive us of it. Sir, when you were in your swaddling clothes, Christ Jesus reigned freely in this land in spite of all his enemies. His officers and ministers convened for the ruling and the welfare of his church, which was ever for your welfare, defense, and preservation when these same enemies were seeking your destruction and cutting off. And now, when there is more than extreme necessity for the continuance of that duty, will you hinder and dishearten Christ's servants and your most faithful subjects, quarreling them for their convening when you should rather commend and countenance them as the godly kings and emperors did? So tough words from, from uh, Andrew Melville to King James. When you were in your diapers, Christ reigned in his church. And he's going to reign a long time after you're gone. And that's true of all of us. So Christ is the head of the church. He's the only head of the church. And so just as my brain, which is in my head, rules my body, 
telling my body exactly what it needs to be doing. So Jesus Christ rules the church. He does it through his word and his spirit that he's given to the church. So Christ is the head of the church. Also, he's the source of the church's life. Now at this time of year, Halloween's coming, and uh, we, we like to hear those scary stories about maybe uh, the legend of Sleepy Hollow, for example, with its headless horsemen roaming the countryside, terrorizing everyone. But we know that there are no headless bodies uh, traversing the countryside. I mean, it just cannot happen. Because a headless body is a dead body. Well, that's what makes it scary, that it's this dead guy coming around without his head on. But a headless body is a dead body, uh, and a dead body doesn't ride horses or scare people. So it is in the church. If the body is not connected to the head, then there is no life in it. We must be connected to Jesus Christ. There is no other way to have life. Now, thankfully, no one here acts like the Pope or King or, or the boss of the church, thankfully. And I haven't heard any of you openly claim to be the head of the church. That's, a, that's good. And I'm not going to say that either. And if I do, you can run me off. But we may not say it explicitly, but we do say it implicitly every time that we refuse to submit to Christ and his word. Every time that we refuse to obey his words, we are in essence saying, I know better than you do, Jesus. I'm in charge of my own life, and I'll decide what I do and what I believe. When we do this, when we pick and choose to believe some parts of the Bible and leave off and disbelieve other parts, or just when we're rebellious against the head, well, when we do that, we're cutting ourselves off from the head. And there's no life in that. People who refuse to submit to the head are like corpses with severed heads. They cut themselves off from the source of spiritual life. Jesus used a different metaphor to describe this. When he talked about the vine and the branches in John 15. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." Well, when the hurricane came through a, a couple of uh, weeks ago, uh, the parking lot out here was filled with those little small branches from the oak trees. And most of those branches were already dead. You know, they, they just got blown out of the tree. They had kind of been hanging around inside the tree. But they had previously, before the storm, had already been cut off from the, from the trunk of the tree, from the branches of the tree. They were just stuck in the, the many limbs that the oak trees have. Of course, the, the you know, strong winds blew those branches out. and You probably had the same experience in your yard, just little small, little dead branches that were cleaned out. Well, that's kind of like what Jesus is talking about here. If you're not connected to the, 
the, to the vine as a branch, then you're not going to have any life. You're going to die. You're disconnected from the tree. You become lifeless. And just because someone hangs around church a lot does not mean that they have spiritual life. So the question is, are you connected to Christ? Is your life in Christ? Are you clinging to him? The letter to the Colossians is a lot like the letter to the Ephesians. It says some of the same things. I almost preached on Colossians 1 because it's a parallel passage. I've already read part of it to you before. But in chapter 2, Paul tells the Colossians, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. So what was going on in Colossae at the time was some false teachers had come into the church and they said, you know, if you really want to grow as a Christian, if you really want to be a spiritual person, what you need to do is, first of all, become an ascetic. You know, uh, beat the body, uh, you know, be strict physically. You know, restrict yourselves in certain ways physically. And that will help you get connected with these angel intermediaries. And they will help you have these visions of secret knowledge that you need to reach the next level of spirituality. And of course, some of these people who maybe have experienced these things, uh, they got puffed up with pride. You know, look at me, I'm Mr. Super Spiritual here because I've had these visions and I'm very strict with the way I, what I eat and drink and how I live my life and, and uh, I've gotten connected with these angels and all this sort of thing. And, and Paul's saying, that's garbage. You're getting disqualified for following these peoples because you have, you are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. See, you're doing all these other things that are not the word of Christ. You're not listening and following Christ. You're following something else. You've cut yourself off from the head. You've cut yourself off from the source of life. These Colossians were following a different teaching than Christ's teaching. and He's saying, hold fast to the head, otherwise you're not going to grow. So again, we must all ask ourselves the question, have we gotten derailed? Have we gotten uh, off, off the mark? Are we focusing on other things instead of focusing on Christ? Sola Christos, Christ alone. He's the one that we should focus on. Am I following the true head of the church? Do I believe and do what the head of the church, Jesus Christ, says to believe and do? Am I holding fast to him? We fall short in this area. Of course, we must renew our commitment to following Christ and his word. As the reformer said, sola Christos, sola scriptura, sola his word. Well, finally, another implication of this is that if Jesus is the head of the church, then his body, the church, or the church is his body. Now, a church is not a building. A lot of people make that mistake. A church is a building uh, we call a church a building, or we call a building a church, where the people who are the church actually meet. The church is not the building. The church consists of people who are connected by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and they meet together in a 
particular locale. They're called a church. Now, are you a member of the body of Christ? Are you connected to the head? Are you putting your faith in Christ? If you are, you're a member of the church. Have you turned from your own selfish, sinful ways and turned to him in submission and trust and embraced him as your Lord and Savior? It's only, the only way you're going to have that kind of life is through Christ. And he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now there's some implications that come with being in the body of Christ. Well, the body is a unity. We're all part of the body of Christ. The body has, of course, different parts, arms, legs, eyes, ears, noses, etc. Though there are many different parts to a body, they form one body, one life. All the parts together have life and health. So it is in the church, in the body of Christ. They're united together to form a unit, one single body. All the parts fit together and work together to form one whole. And we're not just talking about First Pres Biloxi, we're talking about the body of Christ in the world. We are part of that body, that worldwide body of Christ. Uh, believers in Australia, in Africa, in Europe, uh, believers all over the world are all part of the one body of Christ. Believers not just from this age, but from every age are part of this one body of Christ. It's united together, those who put in their faith in that head and connected to him for life. Now, it's easy for us to get discouraged in a small church. We can get discouraged by the day of small things, and, and we might be tempted to give up through our discouragement, but we need to understand this, that we're something, we're part of something that is bigger than just what we see here today. We're part of the church, the body of Christ, his body on earth. We're part of that. And so our purpose in life goes beyond just the here and now, uh, or our locality, we're connected to the whole thing all over the world. Isn't that much more exciting when you think about it? That we're part of this great big body that Christ has called to himself. So the body is a unity, but like I said, it's got many parts. So we're part of this body. We have a job to do. Just like the arm has a jo job, the eye has a job, the ear has a job. You know, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about this. You're probably mostly all familiar with that. If you're part of the body of Christ, then you have a job. In the body, to function properly, all the parts have to be working together. You know, a body is not effective if the legs don't work, obviously, or if the arm doesn't work, or if the eyes don't work. Are you using your spiritual gift? Are you contributing to the body of Christ? Being fed by the head, drawing your life from him, letting that fuel your service to him, Fulfilling your purpose in the body of Christ. Don't let the body down. Look to the head to tell you what to do. That's how it is in the human body. The brain tells the arms, the legs, the voice, the eyes, what to look at, what to say, what to do. The Lord guides us through his word. So listen and obey. And then finally, the church is the fullness of Christ. This body, as Paul describes it here in verse 23, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's kind of a hard concept to get your head around. What does it mean that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all? Well, there's probably a lot to that that we could talk about for a long time. I'll just suffice it to say this, or to use this illustration. Everyone is rejoiced at the birth of a child. Even the youngest children here 
have probably had the opportunity to hold a newborn in their hands, very carefully, sitting down. But you know, when you when you hold that newborn baby, you forget how tiny they are and how vulnerable they are. But no matter how small the baby is, that baby is complete. You know, you don't have to add arms later or legs later. You know, the baby comes complete. It's just not mature. The body, the baby, has to grow and reach maturity. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about it. This is the amazing New Testament conception of the church. And since the Lord Jesus Christ ascended and returned to heaven, this body of his, the church, is being perfected. Think of a newborn baby. In a sense, the child is perfect, but it can grow and develop, and it will attain to a certain maturity. The same is true of the Christian church. From the ascension to the second advent, the body of Christ has been growing and developing, and there is a day coming when she will be complete and perfect. Then the body will be complete and entire and will have attained its fullness. So I must learn to think of myself, humble, worthy, and significant Christian as I am, as someone who is essential and vital to the fullness of the mystical body of Christ. What an idea. He's right. As we said before, we're we're part of something greater than we can conceive. But this time the application is a bit different. We should use this idea as a fuel for holiness. To the extent we grasp this idea, we shall receive strength not to sin, Lloyd-Jones writes. It will enable us to see sin in a new light. A member of this mystical body continuing in sin? Impossible. There's no way in which, there is no way which leads so directly to holiness and sanctification as this understanding of the New Testament doctrine of the church as the body of Christ. We are part of his fullness of his mystical completeness as the mediator, as the one given to the church by God to be its head. Remember who we are. Remember who is our head. Remember all these things as we think about the Reformation. The reason they said, uh, in Christ alone, in his word alone, and it's by grace alone that we're saved, through faith alone in him, to God's glory alone. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would grow up in every way into Jesus Christ who is the head, into him who makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Lord, we pray that you would open our minds, give us wisdom, give us enlightenment and understanding to grasp all those things that you promise us, the hope that we have in Christ, Uh, the the great riches that are ours in Christ. Lord, I pray that everyone here would, would, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians here, that they would come to understand and grasp that. And Lord, we pray that it would transform our lives into the image of Christ. And may we be a vital part of your body, the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.